HTC 3PO. Wrapping about space, the new place to go. You can eat all you want and you won't gain a pound because there isn't any weight here like back on the ground. We travel very fast near the speed of light. You can leave in the morning and get home last night. Welcome to Detour to Neverland, where you are the author of your own Disney story. There's a lot of satisfaction in developing ideas into realities. And you can find magic in your everyday life. If you do what you really want to do, you feel like you're playing. How can you write your first chapter today? Dreams are how we figure out where we want to go. Life is how we get there. I'm headed this way. We're your hosts, Brendan and Catherine. Welcome back to Detour to Neverland. Today is episode number 218. I know exactly what you're thinking. We are absolutely going to talk about that beautiful rap that you heard at the very beginning of this episode. Probably we should just do an entire episode about that rap, right? I mean, it was pretty life changing when we read about it. It was one of those things where it's like C-3PO and R2-D2 do a rap and you immediately YouTube it. We found it. It's awesome. If you need to go do it and listen to it, uh, you can take a quick break and then come back. But we're going to talk about it in depth later. Yeah, I was going to say, or just wait and then you can pause the episode when we get to it so you can get like the full experience. So, of course, today we are continuing our storytelling series. This is all about Star Tours and Star Tours. The adventures continue. I will go ahead and say I'm not going to differentiate between the two of them for this entire episode. It's Star Tours. It would be a lot of back and forth. But I don't I don't know anybody who doesn't just call it Star Tours at this point in time. I do understand there's two iterations of it and we'll talk about that. But, um, you know. That's what everybody knows it as. So that's what we're going to refer to it as. If you are new to this series, what we're doing here is looking at the different attractions and the Disney parks and just trying to get a better understanding of what the storytelling aspects of them are. So that the next time you ride those attractions, you maybe feel a different emotion, catch something different. Or in this case, the big takeaway today is understanding the historical significance and how big of a deal Star Tours was. Both of us born in the 90s, went to the Disney parks. I would say most of our memories are like in the early 2000s from our childhoods. I think it's fair for both of us to say that. So Star Tours was already kind of older by the time we got to experience it. I know if you went to the parks in the late 80s or the 90s, this was a huge deal. So this is this is a very generational type ride, I think. And we'll get into some of that as well but just to lay that groundwork just so we're all familiar and on the same page of this star tours has four different uh rides in operation right now and here's when they opened disneyland opened in january 1987 tokyo disney opened in july 1989 hollywood studios at walt disney world opened december 1989 and then disneyland paris was the last version to open in April of 1992. And all of these different versions have now been updated to Star Tours. The adventures continue. Do you remember when it went down for refurb? I don't. And honestly, it's because, I mean, without you, Brendan, I I wouldn't know anything about Star Wars. And my dad's a big Star Wars fan, but he's outnumbered with three girls. So, I mean, Star Wars wasn't anything that we paid attention to and honestly growing up my family 
probably went to Hollywood Studios the least out of any park. So it's just not something that I have a like a strong connection to. Yeah. We also like to give credit where it is due. And for those keeping score at home, we have our favorite Imagineers at this point. Catherine, yours is still Joe Rohde. Forever and always. Mine, I think, is who was the lead Imagineer on this ride. Tony Baxter, the one and only. <laughs> and he has, of course, it's a team effort. But, you know, we always have, have that lead person who's taking charge on these. And Tony Baxter uh, played a large role in bringing Star Tours to life. Um, so I think most of us understand the story of Star Tours. I think it's one of those that for the most part, and you don't even really have to be too familiar with the movies, I don't think, you can pick up the gist of what's going on. But just as a refresher, here's what is happening. So it originally opened and it was set in a time period after Return of the Jedi. And this company, uh, the space line travel company called Star Tours, including Captain Rex, R2-D2, and C-3PO, were taking you to different parts of the universe. It received an update in 2011 where it got an updated ride system, and the story has changed just a little bit. Uh, jury is still out. You can make your own decision if it's better or worse since this update. But now we don't necessarily know when Star Tours takes place within the Star Wars canon. Um, like we, like you are probably familiar with, there's many different scenes that take place. Sometimes you'll see Darth Vader. Sometimes you'll see Kylo Ren and Finn. Obviously those characters are not alive at the same point in time in the Star Wars universe. So it's not exactly, uh, set in any time period, uh, anymore. However, we know that you're going on this tour through Star Tours. <laughs> Rex has been taken out, sadly. We'll talk about him later. But uh, you sit down. You are sitting in your Star Speeder 1000. And C-3PO has been assigned to maintenance of this ship. R2-D2 unexpectedly takes the ship off. Before C-3PO is ready, he is not supposed to go with you. He is not the captain of the ship but he is stuck there with you because r2d2 did it you encounter some sort of dilemma where either the first order or the empire or the trade federation whoever it might be tries to stop you uh, and accuses that there is a rebel spy on your ship turns out that is true someone from the light side comes and confirms that with you and then you go through different parts of the universe where you're trying to reach a rebel base to protect that rebel spy. And I will say, I agree that I can appreciate the story from someone who before now, now I'm all caught up in the Star Wars everything. But before I was, I can appreciate that the ride, you know, is very uh, easy to understand, like from the very beginning. And this is what we love about any good ride is that you kind of know what's going on before you even get on the ride. So the queue sets it up nicely. The pre-show sets it up nicely. And then by the time that your tour has started, you really understand what's going on. So even if you don't 
quite understand the different planets that you're on or like the scenes that are taking place, you can at least recognize, like for me, it was always, I just can recognize the characters and I can appreciate that I'm on different planets and, you know, things are going wrong. So I do appreciate that even if you're not a huge Star Wars person, I do think you can still ride this ride and at least understand and appreciate the story that's being told. I do think the cool factor is upped if you've watched the movie and if you understand what's going on. Like, for example, we have favorite scenes. Like when we ride, we always hope to see certain things that relate to like the newer movies just because it's cool to get to see those things. Yeah. I mean, like I personally like to go to Kashyyyk because I want to see Wookiees. You want to see Crate, right? So you can see the red sand. That's my favorite scene. Yeah. So, you know, there's always something to look forward to. And that also plays into this as well, is that there are 21 different segments available. There's also different holograms that are available. Sometimes you get Lando, sometimes you get Princess Leia, uh, whatever it might be. And so if you combine all of those together, which it's even hard to say this because it's not entirely true because some they won't match together because they're set in different time periods. But if you just throw everything out the window, there are over 700 different combinations of what you could get. Which is pretty incredible. It is incredible, but I don't know. I feel like everybody says this. Everybody says, I get the same thing every time. Which does happen a lot. I don't know. See, we don't know like the inner workings of Star Tours. We're going to have to get, you know, some people back on who could actually tell us like how they pick which ones. Like maybe the cast members have a favorite one. So they get to pick which scene you get. But that has happened to us before where, you know, it feels like we ride the ride four times and three times we get the same scene. Yeah. So I think that lays the good groundwork. We understand where this ride is located. We understand the story to a certain extent. And like I kind of alluded to at the beginning of this episode, the biggest takeaway here is we have to put ourselves into the mid eighties and understand how big of a deal star tours was when it came to the parks. Well, I think to put it in a good perspective that I think we can all understand, it was basically like getting Galaxy's Edge. I mean, I I would say that that craze, that fandom, that excitement was the same. And we're going to get to some of the crazy things that they did to hype it up. But if I were to compare the two, I mean, I think it's pretty similar. They made it a big deal. Yeah. And, you know, and going along with that, I think if you're writing the history of Disney parks of the Walt Disney Company or of just in theme parks in general, Star Tours almost has to be part of that discussion of how everything unfolded and how much of a ripple effect that this attraction had on opening up many different avenues and many different areas that we can explore in theme parks. It's a it's a very big deal. I think I would almost equate it. Um, maybe not as significant as the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, but similar in what it did and the role that it plays in the history of things. So to fully grasp the significance, like I said, we need to think back to the early and mid 80s for the Walt Disney Company. If you've watched any sort of documentaries on Disney Plus around this time period or, you know, if you were alive during that time period, you understand that the Walt Disney Company really struggled during that time period. Um, 
both live action and animated movies were bombing at this point in the box office. So Disney was not producing the quality of movies that they were accustomed to. And it had detrimental effects across the entire company. The reliance on theme parks at this time was at an all time high because the box office numbers were down and it was accounting theme park revenue was accounting for 70% of the overall revenue. Which is crazy to think about because we are theme park forward people, but I think both of us have always viewed it as Disney is a movie company and theme parks are a byproduct of that movie uh, of that division and they drive acceleration in the theme parks. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. I mean, and I think that's just because growing up, you know, we had more access to movies than maybe we did to the park. So I feel like that kind of goes hand in hand. But when we also look at the parks, we see all of the, you know, the movie references, the characters from the movies. So we kind of, you know, tie it in that way. Another thing that was taking place around the same time period is the Reliance Group holdings were threatening a takeover of the company. So, all of this kind of combined is painting a picture and and you're probably familiar with it. The company was not in good shape at all. They had kind of fallen off the pedestal. They weren't seen the same way. Uh, of course, Walt had just died less than 20 years ago at this point in time. Um, well, I guess less than 10 years ago, if we're talking about the late 70s. Um and so they were fumbling and stumbling and they couldn't really get their footing. And so Disney, amid the turmoil, turned to the president of a rival company, Paramount Films, and Michael Eisner was brought on in 1984. Michael Eisner, we can probably do a full podcast just on Michael Eisner's career in Disney. There are so many different crazy stories, things that he advanced, things that he pulled back, Whatever it might be, but, you know, undoubtedly when he took the role of CEO and chairman, the focus of the company shifted back towards animation, which I think any people who follow the Walt Disney Company would agree that that's where it should be. That that's when Disney is at its best, when animation is driving everything. But he also saw that the parks were being neglected um, and particularly he wanted to draw on this demographic of teenagers and young adults with by bringing them in by telling more relevant stories and by bringing in thrill rides. And this might not tie in completely with what we're talking about, but I do see how, you know, that's something that you should really tap into. I mean, just this past weekend, we went to Universal um, where they're known for having bigger thrill rides. I feel like Islands of Adventure. And that's all we saw were teenagers. And that's a whole other tangent being surrounded by teenagers all day. Whew. But, you know, it's interesting that he kind of recognized that that demographic was missing and that that's a huge population of people that he wanted to try to bring into the parks instead of just like little kids and families. So he made this decision. He decided this is the demographic that he wanted to go after. So where else would you possibly turn? What is bigger in the late 70s and early 80s than Star Wars? I mean, nothing, obviously. And 
but it's easier said than done, right? It, you know, you can't just wave a magic wand and get Star Wars to come into your parks. But this plays into why that I believe that Michael Eisner is truly the only person who could have pulled this off and gotten this deal done. So if you think about Michael Eisner's career back when he was at Paramount Films, he worked with George Lucas there. So George Lucas um, was wrapping up Star Wars and I guess not wrapping up is the right word. George Lucas had this new idea for a new movie franchise based on Indiana Jones. So he had this script and this story and a budget prepared for Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he had a budget of $20 million. He was turned down by almost every single film company in Hollywood, except for Paramount Films. So Michael Eisner took a chance. Michael Eisner thought that Indiana Jones could be the next big hit under George Lucas. And to a certain extent, he was right. Indiana Jones is a gigantic franchise. It received three sequels and that kind of forged this relationship between Lucas and Eisner that I think played a major role in getting this deal done. So, but star tours was not the first time that these two broke bread together between the Walt Disney company and George Lucas. So first Lucas was brought on to be the executive director of a sci-fi 4d film featuring Michael Jackson called Captain EO. Catherine only went on Captain EO once when it was in Epcot. And what was your experience? Oh, my God. I mean, so just to put things into perspective, um, I'm not like anti-Michael Jackson, but (laughs) me and Brendan joke a lot because my parents only played like the same CDs when me and my sister were growing up. So like, we're big Jimmy Buffett fans because <laughs> we listened to a lot of Jimmy Buffett, Shania Twain, just like random things. So I didn't listen to a lot of Michael Jackson and I didn't even know that Captain EO was in Epcot until I went with Brendan's family in 2011. So I'm, I mean, a high schooler, I'm a teenager and they take me in to watch Captain EO on vacation And I just thought it was like the biggest waste of time. I didn't enjoy it. I'm sorry. To Captain EO's defense, it was at the end of its life at that point. It wasn't being kept up as well as it should have been. And it was outdated. So I don't know if I can forgive you for not appreciating Captain EO. Or I definitely can't forgive you for not appreciating Michael Jackson. That's a that's a deep rooted issue that I think you and I have. And we're going to have to work through that, maybe with some therapy, but <laughs> whatever it might take to get us on the same page as far as Michael Jackson music. Um, but anyway, obviously, when Captain EO released in Disneyland, it worked and it worked well. And George Lucas and the Walt Disney Company were then, you know, willing to take this a step further and. It's almost one of those deals. I wonder what conversations took place, but you would almost have to think both parties wanted Star Star Wars in the parks, but maybe they didn't explicitly say it because they didn't know the other party wanted it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I definitely see how this is mutually beneficial for both groups. I mean, Disney, it's giving them 
that huge attraction and bringing so many new people into the parks. I mean, we said the same thing about Galaxy's Edge is just think of all the people who want to come to Disney now to experience Star Wars in a new way. And you have to think about it from, I'm sure, George Lucas's perspective is he's getting to bring it to life. I mean, how cool is that? So I do think it's mutually beneficial. So they struck this deal. They decided to make it happen. They were going to bring a Star Wars ride to Disneyland at this point. We did not know that it was going to be Star Star Tours at this point. But um, this broke the barrier where they're going to bring an outside intellectual property and license it to use it in the Disney parks, which is a big, big deal. That opens so many doors. That opens the door for Avatar in the future. It opens the door for Universal to do something like Harry Potter. I mean, there's there's something profound about that you can borrow intellectual property and bring it to life into something that you don't quote unquote own. Mm -hmm. So they decided that this was going to happen and they then had to decide what was this ride going to look like. So the first crack was by George Lucas. So Eisner gave George Lucas a chance to give a pitch for a ride that he developed And his idea was to create an indoor dueling coaster in Tomorrowland where riders would choose either the light or the dark side to ride on. And depending on which side you rode on, it would feature character scenes portraying that. And ultimately, it would be a clash between good and evil. Now, it almost just sounds like Space Mountain rethemed a little bit. No, it sounds so much better. Sign me up for this. I agree. I mean, it's just an indoor coaster in Tomorrowland. You automatically think about Space Mountain, but maybe he had a very different idea in place. But due to budget restrictions and the time that it would take to build an attraction like this, Eisner did not approve it. Now, but remember budget restrictions, because <laughs> I think that might come up again. But so you're on board with this idea? Oh, my gosh. Yes. And I mean, even today, can you imagine what they would come up with? Like we've seen, I feel like with Hagrid's even talk. Let's talk even pre Hagrid's because we're now the world's biggest Hagrid motorbike fans. But like even if you think about the Incredicoaster, when we did that in Pixar Pier, I was amazed with how they were able to tell a story on a roller coaster. I think it's possible now. It's something that I never would have imagined, but you can do it. And it's amazing because it ties in everything that you love, the thrill and the storytelling. If they could pull this off today, I would be super excited for it. And obviously, rewritability is a big thing that we key into because we go to the park so often. So if you have two different sides, how much does that play into it? It's pretty awesome. Oh, yeah. And I mean, if we consider what they do with, you know, Star Tours now when they update the scenes and things like that to give you new experiences, if they could even do that same kind of technology with this roller coaster to update, you know, different scenes and new characters. I mean, that would be cool, too. 
I should know this, but I don't. And I'm curious if you do. We could pause and look it up, but I'm trying to stay true <laughs> to our conversation. Was Space Mountain built yet at this point? Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. Because Space Mountain technically is two different tracks, at least in Walt Disney World. And so I'm wondering if it was kind of adopted or borrowed if it came after i should know this we both should know this we fail today we should but we don't it's okay i like to leave these little questions lingering out there so you guys can send us messages and correct us and and tell us the truth about how this happened so um you know let us know if you know how that timeline played out we've not done space mountain yet we will do it in the future for that's, our storytelling that's our excuse yeah so um so that idea was next and other ideas that came and ended up on the cutting room floor were they wanted to do a boat ride through Dagobah, which is where Yoda lives. Okay, that was the, that was going to be my next question. The swamp land where Yoda lives. Ooh. And so you do a tour of there. And I I saw it mentioned some places online, but other places didn't confirm this. There is concept art of this lingering out there. If you'd like to go look it up to what this ride would have looked like. But I read somewhere that the big payoff at the end was if you're familiar with the movies, this is where Luke starts to harness the force under Yoda's uh, teaching mentorship. And you know that one of his big feats is he's able to use the force to raise the X-Wing out of the swamp. A similar thing was going to happen to your ride vehicle. Hmm. So I assume there's like an animatronic Luke and he was going to quote unquote lift your ride vehicle. I think that's an interesting concept. It kind of makes me think of, you know, just like the slow dark ride in Avatar, like you have a thrill ride and then you have like a lesser cool dark ride. That's what that makes me think of. I think that could be cool, but I don't know if it's a big thrill attraction that they were looking for. Yeah. And I think that's probably it. And, you know, that's also if you're thinking about if you're in Michael Eisner's shoes, that sounds very expensive as well. True. To build that <laughs> entire set. Compared to what we got, which was an idea that was not originally intended for Star Wars. So Imagineer Tony Baxter had an, had an idea for a motion simulator he was working on for years with Charles Bright, a fellow Imagineer. And originally they had this motion simulation attraction and they were boasting, basing it on Captain Nemo of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That didn't work out because that was going to be in an expansion of Disneyland that never happened. We'll talk about that in a later episode. They had sat on his desk for a few years. And then when the black hole came out in 1979, they were starting to have conversations about shifting this ride simulation to the black hole. However, it was a massive flop at the box office. So they couldn't justify spending that much money to put it in the parks because it was not an intellectual property that people latched onto mm -hmm. as well. So 
Tony Baxter caught wind and the Imagineering office caught wind that they were going to do this attraction with George Lucas. And so Tony Baxter got the chance to pitch Michael Eisner and George Lucas on this idea. And reportedly they both loved it. And I think it's interesting. One of the reasons that George Lucas loved it so much is because he was pitched on the on the idea that the story and the screenplay could be reprogrammed over time and at any time to incorporate new scenes. So new planets, new characters, and it could continue to be this evolving and living attraction, which is true because we've seen that over time. Uh, and I just think that is so fascinating that that's the part that George Lucas latched onto. And from Michael Eisner's standpoint, I guess it maybe doesn't sound like it's as expensive as some of those other options. Spoiler alert, it was. Yeah, turns out um, in order to do this, they had to purchase four military grade flight simulators and they purchased four of them for the low, low cost of. $500,000 a piece. So it ended up being very expensive. And all in all, when it opened, it cost them about $32 million. And to put that into perspective, because we've only talked about cost a few times because they don't make it easy to find. Um, but just to put that in perspective, it cost about... Twice the price of Disneyland when it was opened. So for one attraction, twice yeah. the cost of the entire park. You have to account for 30 years of inflation, but it is still a staggering number. I do know that $6 million, and I wonder if it's part of that number or not. George Lucas got $6 million just to shoot the different scenes for the opening sequences. That I feel like you would have to include that because it does go hand in hand with the ride. But it's an interesting number to think about. And they didn't stop there. So when we talk about the grand opening, because this was so monumental and they kind of put a lot on the line with opening this ride and it was obviously very expensive. So they want the return for their money. They did not hold back. The first thing that they did. They celebrated by opening the park for 60 straight hours, nonstop. Which would be awesome. And it was because they knew so many fans, so many people would want to get on this ride. Can you imagine, though, being one of those cast members? Well, you didn't work 60 straight hours. I know, I'm just saying, but can you imagine just like the craziness or being scheduled for one of those like odd shifts. But I wonder if it was so monumental that they like wanted to be there. Possibly. It's just a different perspective. I think it'd be interesting or to maybe to talk to one of those cast members that was there. If anybody or, knows a star tours opening day <laughs> cast member, let us know. Or someone who went, that would be cool. Yes. But they opened for 60 straight hours. So they started at 10 a.m. on January 8th and they stayed open until 10 p.m. on January 11th. Crazy. That's pretty crazy. And then as far as marketing, they didn't hold back either. So they were trying to build up this hype around the new attraction 
And it makes sense, again, considering how much they spent building it. So the very first thing that they did was they released these Star Tours press kits. And these kits contained interviews with George Lucas, Michael Eisner, and this one gets me, C-3PO. You wouldn't want to interview C-3PO? It's just so funny that, I mean, that was part of their press kit to build this hype for it. Well, I don't know. This this is heading down a different rabbit hole as well. But anybody who's familiar with Star Tours, Anthony Daniels, who plays C-3PO, is obviously a legend. He loves this role so much, he almost doesn't say no to anything. Can you blame him? We could probably tell him that I'm having my 28th birthday in October and I really want to meet C-3PO. And he would probably be there. He just loves the role so much. It's like part of his identity now. Oh, that's really sweet, though. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of love that. So he was a big part of it. And then let's circle back to our opening clip, our wrap. That was part of a released TV special that they titled A Vacation in Space. So this feature focused all about how the ride was made, space travel, and then just other space-related films. So they were really trying to highlight the story of space tours as this is your opportunity to travel into space. This is your opportunity to see these places that you've fallen in love with because of Star Wars. Like, now's your chance. Here you can go. And they were even trying to relate it to, like, real space travel. Well, I was going to say, a lot of the people that were of age and this target demographic also grew up during the space race at this time. So space and space travel really appeals to this particular generation. So they, I mean, they were genius for playing that angle i think of you're flying through space you're going to these different sites it just happens to be (laughs) your favorite franchise of all time that you are literally obsessed with so well played on their part but i do think it does help you buy into the story also and of course the best part of the program was the opening which is what we played just a very small clip of and that's when c3po and r2d2 perform that rap. And now would be the perfect time to pause, make sure you come back and listen to the rap on YouTube. It's a game changer. I it's something. I mean it's so entertaining. It is. It's funny. It is funny. It, it's it's almost a little cringy though. Well, you know, all good things are even like when we talked about Splash Mountain promo and all the things that they did. It's funny, entertaining, and a little cringy. It's 80s. That's what the 80s were. <laughs> if, we, if we just describe it, just wrap it all into one. So that was, you know, the hype of it all. So the last thing that I think we have to talk about are the droids. Because they're so lovable. And it is a big part of, again, just setting the scene for this attraction because having all of these different droids throughout the ride and the queue really make you feel like you are boarding the, what do you call it? The star speeder star speeder. 1000. 1000. <laughs> so let's talk about 
the first two droids. They are G2 repair droids, and they're found in the queue. And a couple interesting facts. First off, they have a connection to Splash Mountain. I never in my wildest dreams would have imagined that Star Tours and Splash Mountain have anything in common. Tony Baxter. Well, besides Tony Baxter. So maybe this is his little nod, like this is his little Easter egg. But the two droids, and we're talking about in Disneyland, in the queue are actually skinned down geese from the extinct America Sings attraction. And we've talked about this attraction before again, because a lot of the animatronics made their way into that final scene in Splash Mountain. They did not get uh, de-skinned. No, No, they're fully... uh, Skinned. Still, still geese. Yeah, still geese or animals or whatever else they are. But these two got skinned down and they can actually be heard singing. I've been working on the same droid all the live long day because in America Sings, they sang, I've been working on the railroad. How fun is that? That is fun. Props to you, Tony Baxter. Um, so specifically... G29T, he's the droid who does the security scanning. And it's so funny. As soon as I looked up pictures of these droids, I will never not see them as geese now. I mean, they truly look like skinned geese, which is hilarious. And he does all the security scanning. And some interesting things that you could see on his scanner could include Wally, a Mickey Sorcerer hat, a Stormtrooper armor, and a Buzz Lightyear action figure. And a little nod because in a lot of these attractions, they like to give like small credit to some of the Imagineers that worked on him. He's voiced by Imagineer Tom Fitzgerald, who worked on the attraction. The second G2 droid is G24T, who's a security officer. And his fun fact is that he's voiced by Patrick Warburton. Brendan, do you know who that is? Of course. The Tick. We had this discussion before on our Soren episode. Oh. He is the Soren pre-flight attendant. He also played The Tick on one of the greatest short-run TV shows to ever exist. Do your homework. There's some Tick fans out there who are offended. Oh. <laughs> Especially since we've had this conversation. Whoops. But pre-show voice for Soren. So I think that's a little fun fact. Next, of course, we have DJ R3X. And he is by far one of the most beloved droids to date. I'd say out of, well, I was going to say almost all of out of the, (laughs) I can't talk. Out of all the droids that we're talking about, he might be the most famous. But I don't know if that's true. But he was originally known as RX-24, then Captain Rex. And then, of course, most recently, he has returned as DJ Rex in Ogas. And he's awesome. Is the, is this his favorite role for you, is DJ Rex? Uh, I probably like him more as DJ Rex than Captain Rex. Um, but it's still a little sad to see that he's no longer a captain. But maybe he's following his dreams. Maybe he always wanted to be a DJ. Or maybe he retired. Maybe. He wasn't a very good pilot. So it was a forced retirement. Potentially. (laughs) 
<laughs> like time to go. Bye. Um, but of course, he was also created by Tony Baxter um, to be the timid rookie pilot for your Star Tours flight. And he was also voiced by Paul Rubens. Who is? Pee Wee Herman. Who I didn't. Well, how did I not know this? I, don't, I guess, again, you wouldn't really connect those two roles. Uh, go ahead and tell the listeners your other dirty little secret. That I don't really know who Pee Wee Herman is. Yes, you've never watched <laughs> Pee Wee's Playhouse. You've never watched any of the Pee Wee Herman movies. That's not. I've seen it just briefly at your house. You are despicable. I'm a fraud. I can't believe you. I'm sorry. Your homework for the rest of the week <laughs> is to listen to Michael Jackson nonstop, watch The Tick, and watch Pee-wee's Big Adventure. I will get right on that. Then last but not least, we have C-3PO and R2-D2. And in the Disneyland park, these are actual props from the original film. They were just modified to operate as audio animatronics, which, I mean, how cool is that? And C-3PO, like you mentioned earlier, he's voiced by Anthony Daniels, who did provide the voice for C-3PO in the movies. He's a legend. He is a legend. I think, you know, does that cover all like the big topics that we want to talk about for the ride itself? I'd say so. So now we can kind of shift over to review and critique mode. So first, let's hear... Uh, what our listeners had to say. So, of course, if you ever want to be part of this discussion, you can join our Facebook group, Detour to Neverland podcast community. Each week, we put our scorecard out there and ask you guys to provide your scores, your stories, or your opinions on these different attractions. So we have a few answers to go over this week. Um, so our friend Ryan gave it an 8.5. This is his highest score yet since we've been doing this. Wow. That's impressive. He says, this is a great one early in the morning. You can usually walk on it several times in a row. When they added the extra scenes for The Last Jedi, I wrote it six times in a row to see all of the additions. I do remember that was pretty awesome whenever they added those, especially Crate. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a big thrill. Any That's something that we talk about all the time. Anything new in Disney, especially for us, it's a thrill. So even just a few new scenes on Star Tours is beyond exciting because I mean, it's new. I'd also like to point out that Ryan also was gracious enough to share one of the greatest photos I've ever seen in my entire life. It is, they said they had a meetup during star Wars weekends back in the day and they filled up an entire show of star tours with all these people who are cosplaying and dressed up in all their star Wars garb I assume that's Boba Fett, but it could just be a Mandalorian. <laughs> it could be. Um, but it's awesome. It, I I highly recommend going and checking out that photo. Uh, and I also wish that Star Wars Weekend still took place because we never got to go to one. Ugh, I know. I would do anything to meet Mickey and Minnie in their Star Wars garb. You know, there's a lot of things that they should bring back. We'll put that at the top of our list. So our friend Lauren said, I don't do super well th with 3D screens, but I still ride it because I like the theming and the immersion. I typically just keep my eyes closed to avoid the headache factor. Oh, my goodness. That's hilarious. 
So, you know, we don't do like great with screens either. For some reason, this one doesn't bother me. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the day. Um, luckily, this one isn't too crazy. Like some of the ones that we've done, hate to say this, at Universal are like you write it and you are down and out for the rest of the day. So this one's never done that for us. But I mean, it is a screen ride. Despicable Me is the worst thing I've ever sat through my entire life. There's quite a few. We won't go on that tangent, but there's a few. So Sean says not as great as it was. And I always get the pod racing, but it's still a 7.25. And then Jackie, Sean's wife, had to respond and say Sean's reaction is a 10 every time we get pod racing with the winky face. So I assume he doesn't like (laughs) that scene. Well, I mean, I we did talk about it. That is a frustration about this ride is just knowing that there's so many different options. But if you keep getting the same ones, it's like you feel cheated. It's like I want to see something different. I want to see something cooler. So I could agree with that. And then Stacy said it's an eight for her. And obviously she is a huge Star Wars fan. She says, I love this ride. The queue is well themed and entertaining. Finding out who is the rebel spy is really fun, especially if it's someone in your party. And the fact that the scenes change up to give you a new experience really ups the rewritability of it. Once about an hour before part close, my then six year old niece and I wrote it back to back four times. And the CMs joked that we hoped that we were going to get new destinations each ride. Turns out we actually somehow went on the same ride four times in a row, but it was still great. Oh, man. So I wonder, that makes me just wonder, do the cast members actually have a say in what scene you get? I don't know. Because how would they put you on four times in a row and not change it up for you? I mean, come on. Yep. And then last one, our friend Abby said that my husband thinks each ride should stick to one of the three timelines and not mix them together. But we do love the fact that it's different each time and you never know what you're going to get. I think that was a great way to update the ride to keep it fresh. I don't know if we've ever had contradicting. Actually, we did. Last time we got Darth Vader at the very beginning. And then we had old Lando as the hologram. Really? I see. I guess I didn't. I don't pick up on that. Maybe we just traveled a lot of time. and Lando got old before he came in. I do like the addition of Lando, though. It's I I think it's fun. You can also get Finn and Poe, right? Mm hmm. Yeah. And then Leia. Do you get Ray? I don't know. I don't know if I've I've, I don't know if I've ever seen her with my own eyes. Do you get Admiral Akbar? I think you do. Maybe. Man, we're going to have to go ride it. We haven't been on it since the parks reopened. No, I mean, and it is just an easy one to kind of skip, unfortunately, because now that there is so much to do in Hollywood studios and that's one that it's kind of a gamble. Like, are you going to get a cool new scene? Are you going to get the underwater scene that you've done a million times? Oh, my gosh. If I have to see another Gungan, I'm going to throw up. (laughs) So, I mean, it's just that toss up of like, is it going to be worth the time investment? You could write it four times in a row. You And you could get the same thing four times in a row, apparently. Very true. All right. Let's give it our Neverland scores and wrap this up. I gave it, drum roll please, <laughs> a five and a half. 
which is way lower than any of you guys did as the listeners. And Catherine, you gave it even lower. And again, I mean, it makes sense because for things like nostalgia, um, like how much do I miss it? I mean, it's just not a super high score, you know, because I don't have all those feelings. I rated it very high for immersion because I do think it tells a great story. I think when you're on the ride and you're experiencing these different places, I think, you know, you do feel like you're there to a certain extent. And, you know, I I wouldn't change it other than just continuing to update the scenes. And they already do that. So there's not a whole lot that I would change, honestly. Yeah, I I probably wouldn't change it either. I think for me, where I knock it down is just because I don't like screens that much. Um, and so that's really like what it boils down to of why some of these, uh, uh, options don't go as high for me. It's just because when I'm on the ride, I don't enjoy it as much as I wished that I did. And so that's just where it comes down to, you know, subjective. But if you just think about the historical significance and the role that it has played, and it is very immersive, like you said, that especially for its time when it first opened, it blew people's minds mm-hmm. that you could get the feeling of jumping to light speed. And, you know, it it definitely serves that role. So I will always appreciate it. I never want anything to happen to it. I do wish it was in Galaxy's Edge in Hollywood Studios when we're speaking specifically. Well, in Disneyland, too. It's still in Tomorrowland in Disneyland. So I wish they could have found a way to incorporate it. I understand why it hasn't, but maybe that's something they could work on in the future. I thought it was going to be the my coolest idea ever, and I don't know how they could pull this off. <laughs> that's why Imagineers are so much smarter than me. I thought it would be awesome of a way to get into Galaxy's Edge was to ride Star Tours. Mm. So you went on this trip and they dropped you off in Batu at the very end. That would be interesting. That That would be really cool. That would be the only way I enter into Galaxy's Edge. To give you like the full feeling. Yeah. I will say the only thing that you would have to consider about merging the two is, you know, what's in between. Don't say it. I won't say it because we all know what's there, but that would break your heart. Don't touch Kermit. Just saying. Leave him alone. Not hurting anybody. He's entertaining (laughs) dozens of people every day. (laughs) (laughs) So with that being said. That's going to wrap up this episode. We thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you enjoy. We will be back on Monday with an episode with our friend Shane, who is somewhere at Disney, a wonderful Disney photographer. Find him over there. And then next week's storytelling episode will be in Animal Kingdom. It's tough to be a bug. And I know that's tough for you to say. It is. Also, if you missed Monday's episode with Shannon from Second Star Collective, really, really wonderful conversation that we had with her. If you don't leave that conversation just wanting to tackle every dream that you've ever had and create the life that you want, um, then you can have your money back because (laughs) I think it 
fully accomplishes that. Super proud of that one. Super proud of the one coming out on Monday. So hope you guys can join us for both of those and hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. We will talk to you next Monday.